Welcome to Series 2 of The Saltwater Strategists, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific. I'm your host, Sam Farrell-Lee. As the world remains critically dependent on maritime trade, it's essential that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this increasingly competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics, international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategists is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategists is proudly brought to you by BAE Systems. Most immediately and closest to home, Australia now has a direct security threat in our neighbourhood. And I mean a traditional military security threat, as well as an economic and technological security threat. But the big new news is we now have a military security threat in our near neighbourhood that's growing. In the words of Anthony Albanese, Australia is facing the most difficult strategic circumstances since the Second World War. Less euphemistically, we might describe this as the China challenge. And through it, we're witnessing the most fundamental shift in the global strategic balance since 1945. To discuss this profound shift, today we're delighted to be joined by Michael Shoebridge. Michael is one of Australia's leading strategic thinkers and one of our foremost experts on the China challenge. He is currently Director and CEO of Strategic Analysis Australia, and from 2018 until September 2022, was the Director of the Defence, Strategy and National Security Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Before the think tank world, Michael was a deputy in two Australian intelligence agencies, the Australian Signals Directorate and the Defence Intelligence Organisation. And as the first Assistant Secretary for Strategic Policy and Defence, he led the team that wrote Australia's 2013 Defence White Paper. Michael was Australia's senior defence policy official in the Australian Embassy in Washington from February 2005 to June 2007, and he has also served at the senior executive level in both Australia's Finance Department and the Prime Minister's Department, where he was head of the Defence, Intelligence and Research Division. Along with his colleague Peter Jennings, Michael has been one of the key voices helping to open the eyes of the Australian community to the nature of the China Challenge, and we're thrilled to have him on the program. Michael, welcome to the Saltwater Strategists. Uh, great to talk with you, sir. Michael, in 1989, Frank Fukuyama told us the end of history was upon us. Communism was on the verge of defeat, Western liberal democracy was ascendant, and balance of power politics was going to be a thing of the past. Over the following years, the West embraced China, welcoming it into the World Trade Organization, opening its markets, and sharing its technology. All with this expectation that China would liberalize and to rise peacefully into what we called a responsible stakeholder. Instead, though, it seems exactly the opposite has happened. The unipolar moment, as we now refer to it, has vanished. Great power competition is back with a vengeance, and we're now faced with a rich, powerful, more autocratic, and more expansionist China than we could have imagined. Michael, what went wrong? Well, I don't think it was ever right to expect China, a country governed by a communist party system and a very strong communist party system to magically reinvent that system of government. So the Fukuyama idea was 
liberalism has demonstrated that it's the most effective form of organization and governance on the planet. Because of that success, everyone will adopt it. But look at North Korea. Kim Jong-un knows that capitalism is very successful. Does he care? No. What he wants to do is rule the North Koreans, and he's willing to have them suffer while he prioritizes his nuclear program. Last thing he wants to do is open up to the rest of the world and let everyone share in liberal democracy. Well, the Communist Party in China is similar. It's 90 million Kim Jong-uns. Their primary goal is that the party stays in power. So if that's the primary goal, every other benefit is subordinate and secondary to that. And opening up and becoming a liberal democracy would mean the Chinese Communist Party would not be in power. It might win power if, if it won an election, but it would lose power from time to time as well. So we got that completely wrong. And we also didn't understand that there was a way of becoming a successful economy while staying a strong authoritarian state. Michael, this sense of inevitability, it's something that also comes through in Alex Josky's book, Spies and Lies, where he suggests that China's peaceful rise, that this peaceful rise approach was always really a ruse. And as you've said, it was always going to be this way. Uh, China was always essentially aiming to be a revisionist power. What if we'd had someone more uh, more liberally minded in charge? What if rather than Xi Jinping, we'd had, for instance, someone like a Wen Bao? Would it have made any difference? I doubt it would have made much. I'd you know, I'd, I've wobbled around in my own thinking about, you know, the great person in history theory that do they or don't they make a defining difference? You know, for a lot of time, I thought individuals are just a product of the system that they're, they're immersed in. So, you know, leaders pop out of that system almost like a, a product. But I've come to the conclusion that's partly right. Interests and an environment shape people, but individual leaders do matter. So it matters right now that Vladimir Putin is, is the leader of Russia. He's a particular personality with a particular set of traits and that changes the way he makes decisions and what those decisions are. Uh, in the same way, it matters that she is the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. But the system has produced him. And even previous leaders that Western leaders thought were part of this lovely reform and opening up said publicly... Uh, it's best that we hide and bide. We didn't take any of that seriously. We said, oh, that's just all, you know, communist jargon that they have to say because they're in the Communist Party, but they don't really mean it. This is that original Deng Xiaoping type approach. Yes, yes. So he was doing that. It's just they hadn't built their power sufficiently. So I think one big failure, what went wrong was we failed to look at the words they were using and the things they were writing and take them seriously. We, we treated speeches from the Chinese leaders like uh, the, all the communist boilerplate stuff was sort of irrelevant, like all the hood ornaments on old American cars. You just strip them away to get at the real truth. But the communist boilerplate mattered and matters now. So, Michael, if all this is true, what we're saying is that the West essentially helped China get to where it is now. We, you know, we, we encouraged it economically and we gave it the resources to be able to challenge us strategically. So this was an error on our part? Well, it certainly was, but of course the strategic interests and policies were only a tiny part of this. 
a lot of this was economics. Uh, a lot of this was a search for prosperity. Remember, the whole economic approach at the time was just-in-time production, drive all the costs out. Labor costs are the problem. Well, the last you know, 30 years in the Western world has been a pursuit of how do I make myself a, an attractive place for capital? And I do that mainly by driving down the costs of production, which has included deregulation and wage restraint. And uh, that was the agenda we had. Well, the China market was a great way of driving costs out of a business, producing just-in-time results. We gave companies all the incentives to do this, so we can't now be unhappy that they did it. It was actually rolled gold government policy across most of the Western world to organise businesses like this. And so it was a triumph of an economic policy that had inadvertent, very adverse strategic consequences. And one other thing I'd say about it, Sam, is it's actually a failure of integration of government policymaking and implementation in the Western world. So Absolutely. think about the Australian system. We've got this national security community, and then we've got the economic policymaking community, and they're not integrated. So mm. you know, Treasury's agenda was just-in-time production, drive costs out of business, and deregulate the labour market. And I remember having a discussion with senior Treasury officials back in 2013 about the white paper Gillard produced. Australia in the Asian century. Mm. And the Treasury officials said to me, I'm happy to put security into this document as long as it's social security. So it was a bit like, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. The national security community weren't talking to the economic community, but in China they were. And, and certainly in the Australian context, the power of industry as well, that desperation for profits, that search for new markets. And to a degree, we're still seeing that in the Australian private sector. Well, we're seeing it in the Australian private sector, but we're not alone. You know, there's there's a growing gap across Europe, uh, in South Korea, in Japan, and in Australia between government policy and, and the policy of major corporations because mm. they still are very bullish about, I need to be in the China market and I'll do whatever it takes to stay there, while governments are saying, look, I'm calling it de-risking, but really you need to reduce your exposure and dependence on China because it's becoming an increasingly high-risk place for you to operate that's causing consequences to me. So there's still that disconnect. Mm. I'm not even sure it's completely healed inside government between the economic departments and the security departments, but I think they're coming closer together. Taking further this question around the economic elements of the China challenge, certainly uh, the way Xi Jinping has pursued uh, his version of the rise of China has involved economic elements right at its core. Could you perhaps give us uh, some insight into how he is using the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, what he terms Made in China 2025 and dual circulation, what they are and how they fit into his overall strategy? A lot of this, and a lot of people talk about China as their as economic coercion is the way that they're rolling. So it's all about helping resist economic coercion. That's true. There is some economic coercion. Things like what Australia's suffered around lobsters, wine, wheat, barley, wood, coal. But the bigger model is economic co-option. So, and the Belt and Road Initiative is a great example of that. It, it's a strategic economic initiative, which is about helping create a China-centered 
infrastructure, a set of infrastructure in the region, but also globally, that enables the further centering of the world economy inside China. Because all of that port and digital infrastructure, well, for a start, it's delivered by Chinese companies. It all has a digital backbone. So, you know, no modern port, no modern road, the rail system operates without a digital uh, software intensive underpinning. All that is a Chinese digital backbone. And it's to enable that closer integration of all of the participating countries with the Chinese economy and to be further entangled, which gives the Chinese state leverage, which they can use for good or ill. So that's the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's also about breaking their sort of imprisoned problem, where they're imprisoned within that first island chain. And they, they're not a mar- they haven't been a maritime power in history. They like to talk about that moment when they had a fleet, but it was a moment in time and a much bigger sweep of history. They're growing a maritime power, but they also want a way around the maritime problem. And so, you know, the, the Pakistan, the China-Pakistan Economic Cooperation, CPEC, that's all about building a massive land corridor that busts them out of their dependence on maritime trade. And similarly, the rail corridor through to Europe. So the Belt and Road is a strategic and economic initiative, uh, and it's about creating dependency and solving that maritime risk problem. Then Made in China 2025, well, this is a policy that dare not speak its name now. It was public Chinese policy until other countries noticed it and said, wait a minute, you appear to be wanting to steal, uh, exploit and manipulate your way to technical dominance any way you can, and you clearly want to drive other countries out of business. So, you know, if you look at the German car makers, China's future economic vision is not that they're all driving Mercedes-Benz and Audis or, and Volkswagens. It's that they're driving BYDs and Great Wall Motors cars, and they're willing to partner and joint venture with the Germans until they get to a position of strength when they will displace them from their home market. Made in China 2025 is about removing technological dependency on the outside world. And then that fits with the dual circulation strategy, which is all about, you know, it works with the BRI, it works with Made in China 2025. It's about um, making the Chinese economy less dependent on other economies, while at the same time making other economies more dependent on the Chinese economy. And think about it right now with um, all those sanctions on, on Russia. The Xi plan here is make sanctions far less effective on China because it's less dependent on other economies and make Chinese sanctions far more effective on others because others become more dependent on China. And again, it's it's a combined political, strategic, technological and economic construct. Putting all that together, we often hear that China's growing power and assertiveness mean that our geostrategic environment is complex. It's almost got to be kind of, you know, in the Macquarie Dictionary word of the year, complex. But is it actually complex or is it uncomfortably clear? What are the key implications for our strategic environment? Well, most immediately and closest to home, Australia now has a direct security threat in our neighbourhood. And I mean a traditional military security threat as well as an economic and technological security threat. But the big new news is we now have a military security threat in our near neighbourhood that's growing. And that hasn't been true for Australia since World War II. 
So that isn't complex and uncertain and, and incredibly hard to understand. That's unfortunately simple, direct, and dangerous. And what I mean by a direct security threat is the Chinese government has announced an intent to have a growing security role in the South Pacific. It did that when it put forward that 10-nation security pact uh, with the South Pacific. And it's gone beyond that. It's also entered a close security partnership with Prime Minister Sogovare in the Solomon Islands, which is a secret agreement, but the public details mean uh, it will be a site for logistics and replenishment of Chinese military vessels. Uh, and there are uh, mechanisms in it for Chinese security forces to play a direct role in Solomon Islands security when the Chinese government wishes to do so to protect Chinese nationals or interests subject to the Solomon Islands agree. There's a ceding of sovereignty in there by Sogavare, but the more disturbing thing is Sogavare seems willing to enable China's military and security forces to reach right into the middle of the South Pacific, which is our immediate neighbourhood. And we haven't had a risk of that since the battles over Guadalcanal Iron Bottom Sound, just beside the Solomon Islands. So what would that mean for us? Were there to be a PLA base in the Solomon Islands or potentially elsewhere in the South Pacific, what would that mean for Australia's security? What would change in terms of our outlook and how we would need to respond? You can see the change starting to be reflected in things like the government's recent defence strategic review. Uh, a big change is... Uh, we need to start thinking that the Australian military is not now just a bunch of uh, items on a shelf to be offered into American coalition operations, and it's got a real job here at home, securing our near neighbourhood and being sufficiently powerful to deter or in time of war destroy Chinese military assets in our near neighbourhood, and it, to do so operating by itself. And that's the enormous psychological shift that is so hard for institutions and for individuals in them. Because for everybody's career inside the Australian military and broader defence organisation and the intelligence agencies, Australia has not had to operate and sustain military forces alone, except for really benign peacekeeping. But for warfighting, all it's had to do is look inside its force structure and decide which were the low-risk, high-value things we could plug in to a bigger American operation. Well, with, a, with an immediate security risk right here at home, and with the prospects that a wider war means our powerful allies and partners are doing their own thing, we now have a new problem. That's what it means for us. Michael, this question around, as, as you alluded to, the Defence Strategic Review, it talks about this need for Australia to develop, quote, unquote, a capability to unilaterally deter China from offensive military action uh, against Australia, unilaterally, as you said. Is it realistic to think that Australia can unilaterally deter a nuclear-armed emerging great power like China? Do you think the DSR gives us the plan to actually be able to do that? Can we rely on the United States to provide an ongoing deterrent on our behalf? Or is someone like Hugh White correct that a more isolationist US will at some stage look to surrender regional primacy to China. Michael Shearich? Well, I suppose Hugh White has the benefit of um, saying the same thing so many times that he hopes some will, will eventually believe him. 
I don't think he's right because I think he undervalues American interests in the Pacific. Uh, America is absolutely tied to the Pacific and uh, to the nations and economies in it. Uh, and it's not a matter of getting sulky about being less powerful than they were before or relatively less powerful. It's about intrinsic national interests driving them to be connected to the wider region uh, and the wider world. So America can't escape the world. Um, and interestingly, it doesn't even want to. There are two futures for the world, for the digital world, for example. You either live in a US digital world or you live in a Chinese digital world. There is no Tony Blair third way. So America can't isolate itself even if it wants to because of its interests and its economic entanglement. And that's a positive. Now, this idea of Australia operating, deterring China unilaterally, that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about being able to deter Chinese security presence in our near neighbourhood and destroy that security presence in time of war. But I'm not conceiving of a China-Australia war. I'm conceiving of if there's a war with China, it's a broader war, and the theatre that we're most interested in and able to contribute to is our near region. So we're not deterring China alone. This is a collective effort, but we have a real job to do and as to whether we can rely on the Americans or not, well, until we build our own nuclear weapons, we will be relying on the American uh, nuclear deterrent. And it's becoming more important to us, not less. AUKUS is part of bolting us together even closer than before to increase our certainty of that deterrent protection. But this is a case of collective burden sharing to deter war, and in the event that there is war, to make a real contribution. Should there be uh, another Trump administration, for example, or potentially a, a DeSantis administration in the US, do you think that would change anything? Well, anyone who tells you they know what a future Trump administration would do, um, you should immediately stop talking to because nobody knows what a future Trump administration would do. Donald Trump doesn't know what a future Trump administration would do. So... You know, if you were asked to, if it's an intelligence question, how do I find out what a future Trump administration would do? It's insoluble because the primary decision maker himself has no idea what he would do. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we will have to work with whatever president is there and whatever broader administration is there. This debate we have about who the next US president is and is it is it a durable thing to have an alliance? Well, it's been an extraordinarily durable thing over multiple administrations, multiple individual presidents, wafts of where they're you know, seeing allies as more important, where they're integrating more and where they're moving away a little more. So it's been very durable through time. The way to manage a Trump presidency is to remember that any US president is only one of many powerful decision makers in America. You know, even politically, Congress is a whole separate powerful beast to the administration. Um, senators and Congress people have far more power over uh, real decisions around things like defence than in the Australian system of government. We've got a healthy constituency there. We need to build it. Uh, other people in a presidential administration, in the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defence, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of the Treasury, they all matter enormously. So the right way to manage an alliance relationship is not to place all your single bets on the person who happens to be the president or prime minister. That's the way we've done it before, and that'll become more important if someone like DeSantis or Trump is the US president. 
I'd actually put a similar question um, on potential US retrenchment to Joe Nye uh, a while ago, and his response would be, uh, his, his response was, he said, Sam, absolutely not. Doing so would be like uh, committing suicide for fear of death. So, so I, I, Well, that's it. I mean, Joe Nye is, is a really deep thinker, and that, that's a very insightful perspective. The other thing, though, is to think of it from the American point of view. What's a distinctive strength that America has compared to China? Everyone loves talking about, oh, my God, you know, an autocratic regime, it can just tell everybody what to do and align all national resources, and no wonder they're making all these amazing gains. But America has a unique strength, which is called an alliance network. It's incredibly powerful, and it's something that China can't assemble unless it has partners like Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin, uh, who are maybe they're negatives, not net positives, but... Imagine, who is China going to work with so rapidly and effectively uh, to compare with the way Biden unified the US, NATO and the EU in support of Ukraine? That's the multiplier effect in action right now, and it's a unique strength. So an America putting down that unique strength because of competition with China would be like Joe Nye says, it would be more than odd. Michael? A range of commentators, most notably Hal Brands and Michael Beckley, contend that China's changing demographics make it, quote, a peaking power, unquote. They point out that China's population uh, is declining, its average age is increasing, and that over the next 30 years, it's going to lose a staggering 200 million working age adults. Together with diminishing resource availability and a perception that the PLA's military advantages over the US may soon begin to slip. Uh, they say that China might therefore look to achieve its strategic aims sooner rather than later, as soon as the second half of this decade. Uh, Admiral Phil Davidson, the former commander of US Indo-Pacific Command, told Congress China's threat to Taiwan would manifest by 2027. And the US Chief of Naval Operations, uh, Michael Gilday, said that he couldn't rule out that that window would accelerate to 2023. He said, quote, we just can't wish that away, unquote. What are your thoughts, Michael? Do you think about a specific timeline when we're talking about Taiwan, for instance? Uh, no, I don't. My view is it's very useful to have some kind of time frame in these discussions and not have it some, at some nebulous future point where we can all feel very comfortable and say, well, that could be bad, but luckily it's not now. Uh, so a discussion of time frames like Admiral Davidson 2027 or uh, others talking about you know, this decade, on this idea that they've peaked, well, in some ways they have, and they have that classic economic development problem. How do they escape the middle-income trap, which other countries have found so hard to do and become truly developed high-wealth economy with per capita incomes that are all comparable to Europe or the US or Australia? They've still got enormous numbers of people living in poverty, so they will grow old before they grow rich. That's absolutely true. But there's still a huge... Uh, human capital resource there. And the Chinese uh, are aware of this problem. That's why digitization and automation is such a big part of economic strategy there. They think they can sort of tech themselves out of this problem. And even an older China with a slower economy is still going to be able to put enormous investment, human and capital and technological, into military power if it's a priority. And you can see it is a priority. 
they're willing to put in, you know, 7, 10% of GDP year on year, even as their economy slows. So I don't think a declining China uh, is our problem. I think a, a China that stops you know, being just an economic extrapolation of what it's been over the last 30 years is absolutely going to happen. But I still think that means it's a big challenge in, in sheer power terms. My view about t- timeframes and decision-making, Xi is an opportunist, uh, but he's not a crazy opportunist. He does want to unify Taiwan with the mainland, and we know what he wants to do to the people of Taiwan after that. We're seeing it in Hong Kong. Mm. And the Chinese ambassador here has talked about their lucky opportunities, should China conquer Taiwan, that they'll all be re-educated like people in Xinjiang. So we know that. But the military balance and the political will of uh, the democratic world, obviously America, but not just America, is a big factor in this decision-making. So he hasn't got a set date, but he's an opportunist. And if deterrence looks weak or political will looks weak, uh, he's more likely to act sooner rather than later. Is there any thought that uh, that there's a domestic Chinese aspect to this? Would Xi be worried that that if he doesn't act by some point, the domestic Chinese populace will become frustrated by the fact that he hasn't moved? Well, he can deal with some of that by very belligerent rhetoric and by some of the aggressive actions we already see. You know, the close encounters in the South China Sea and in airspace over the South China Sea and around the Taiwan, around Taiwan in the Taiwan Strait, firing live missiles into Japan's exclusive economic zone. So that's an outlet for the pressure cooker of nationalism. Uh, but you've got to remember the Chinese government is stoking this nationalism. So, you know, they've, they're sort of, they've got a, a pet tiger called nationalist sentiment on a leash and they prod it with a stick to make it roar. And then they say, <laughs> oh, look, the tiger's roaring at me. I've got nothing. I, I have to do what it wants. Well, they can tamp down that sentiment just as much as they can inflate it. So I, I really think that is an excuse. And the idea that, well, the Chinese government will be forced to act because of a really unhappy Chinese population that wants them to go to war, a state that's willing to turn its guns on its own people like they did in Tiananmen, that's willing to put millions of people into re-education camps and sterilise them, and that's spending more on internal security than it is on growing its military power, it's demonstrated its willingness to use force to repress anyone that, that really wants the government to do something it doesn't want to do. Michael, the renowned international relations scholar John Mearsheimer has said that the China challenge is more dangerous than the Soviet threat during the Cold War. And his key rationale for this claim is based in the maritime geography of East Asia. He says that during the Cold War, US and Soviet military power, including all the massive land and air forces and thousands of tactical nuclear weapons, was heavily concentrated on the central front in Europe, and that this massive concentration of forces provided a clear and a stable deterrent. The lines were clearly drawn, and crossing them was just unthinkable. Conversely, though, he says, the maritime geography of the South and East China Seas is much more dynamic and much less stable. The lines aren't clear and the deterrent effect isn't nearly as powerful. We've spoken a little bit about this previously when we talked about the South Pacific, but Michael, how do you think the maritime geography of our wider region will affect the nature of the China challenge? Well, we did talk about it a little bit and you know, the history of China is it hasn't really been a maritime power. It, it's been a land power. China knows its dependence on the sea 
And when it looks at the geography of the Indo-Pacific, it says, well, they're not like the Americans where they just have these two big coasts uh, that are free for them to use and hard for anyone else to get to. Um, others are up close and personal right there with them and they're not negligible powers. So they're South Korea and Japan before you get to Vietnam. And then the other problem is American power is enabled by and works through these other powers with that multiplier effect we talked about earlier from the alliance system. So even if China wants to become a maritime power, it still is hemmed in unless it can intimidate and break out of that first island chain. So, you know, part of the the basing, you know, the string of pearls, mm. when that, that idea was first put out, the Chinese government said, oh, what are you talking about? We've got no such plan. They do have a plan. They are building blue water ports as part of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. They've already got their first big port off the Horn of Africa. Pakistan is obviously another node. That's where the South Pacific and Mr. Sogavare come in too. So it is a harder problem because it's not a big, stable land front and you don't have the, the full the gap to concentrate on. But squirting out of the South China Sea is not easy. You know, you, you have to go through a pretty cluttered archipelago and some pretty key straits that can be the subject of control. So it's not an easy problem. And that's why Taiwan strategically is so important because that piece of real estate, you know, forget the freedom uh, of 24 million people, forget the fact that it's the heart of the digital um, economy through semiconductor production, just as a piece of real estate that can be used to project force, that helps them break out of that first island chain in a big way and really threatens the security of Japan in a way that not much else that the Chinese do would. So if you look at their, their maritime strategy, they need to break out of the first island chain and make it a much harder problem for America and its allies. But it is a very difficult problem for them to do successfully if others are paying attention. And as you alluded to, I guess there is this challenge for China being both a maritime power and a continental power, where the US, as you said, can afford to focus its investments on being a, a maritime power and project into the region, whereas China has a number of different threats on its periphery to have to think about, India too being, being top of their mind, I imagine. Well, that's true. Um, however, America does have the problem of time and distance. You know, it, it is a distant power when it comes to Taiwan. China is a close power. But that's where those alliances, you know, you could see the one with Japan uh, and America is just strengthening because it's in both countries' self-interest. And Japan is a significant maritime power all by itself. So when people talk about, well, America's distant, they do tend to discount the contribution and role of major powers like South Korea and Japan. Michael, I wanted to um, dive a bit deeper down into the DSR. And I also wanted to pick up this point we were just speaking about in terms of sea control and with China and its string of pearl strategy, really guarding its sea lines of communication, its trade routes and its energy supplies. Now, the DSR sets out this strategy of deterrence by denial it's focused on our immediate region. To some degree, it's almost a bit of a hark back to 1987 in some ways. To this end, it recommends what is effectively a more powerful sea denial force with missiles for long-range strike, nuclear attack submarines through AUKUS, obviously, and, uh, quote, a larger number of smaller surface combatants 
unquote, which are able to provide presence in our northern approaches. But the DSR also talks repeatedly of this vulnerability of Australia's sea lines of communication and the potential for trying to coerce Australia by disrupting them. Now, our sea lines of communication obviously are some of the longest in the world. They extend well beyond our immediate region and carry more than 99% of our trade, not to mention almost all our military logistics. So cutting them would be disastrous. Michael, it's not clear to me that these proposed smaller ships in the DSR would necessarily have the range, the endurance, the seakeeping, or the multi-mission capability necessary to really provide sea control and to secure our lines of communication. With this in mind, a few months before his passing, uh, the late James Goldrick told me, he said, Sam, anyone who thinks small ships can do what big ships can do clearly hasn't been to sea in one. Michael, do you think this vulnerability around sea control and protection of sea lines of communication has been sufficiently addressed in the DSR? Well, Sam, no, but um, I think of it a, di a different way. And, I, you know, on James Goldrick, who I think, you know, an incredible mind, mm. big contributor to strategic and naval thinking in Australia. He's someone uh, to really listen to. Uh, but the idea that small ships can do what big ships do, well, obviously not. So it's true that adage about, you know, a good big dog will always beat a good small dog, but lots of small dogs can do very nasty things to big dogs. So, you know, I, I look at it as a problem of volume and our force structure has focused too much on a very small number of very expensive, exquisite platforms that we cannot afford to lose. If you can't lose them, can you use them? I don't think so. You know, they've just been reading the industrial history of America during the Second World War called Freedom's Forge, and they produced a force structure knowing they were going to lose whole chunks of it during the conflict. Our force structure is like a family heirloom we have locked in a <laughs> glass cupboard and dust from time to time. We cannot afford to lose it because we can't replace it. So that is a bad force structure because in war you lose things. So being able to replace combat losses, if you can't do that, uh, you've got a really bad force structure. And the only way to replace things is they're less exquisite, less integrated, and that probably means they're smaller and you have more of them. Um, on the idea, I, I agree some, some large capable multi-mission ships are still really useful. So I'm not saying, you know, the age of of the ship, but the surface ship is gone, you know, they're so incredibly vulnerable. Every system is vulnerable in war. You're going to lose some of them, but there's power in a big, capable ship, uh, not one that doesn't have many missile cells, though. So mm, oh, indeed. that is a problem with, with things like the Hunter class. But protecting global sea lanes is not a unilateral effort of the Royal Australian Navy. It's back to this collective defence idea, and I don't think the DSR is clear enough about the collective strategy. So being able to project military power independently and sustain that in our near region from the Malaccas through the South Pacific, that is a must-do job. But broader global trade, including things passing to and from Australia, is going to have to be a collective endeavour. Absolutely. I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out of Admiral Hillarides' review the terms that are in the DSR about Tier 1 and Tier 2 surface combatants, I think, caused a bit of confusion. To me, it harks back to, uh, in the US Navy in the early 70s, Admiral uh, Zumwalt, the then CNO, he introduced a similar 
concept and he called it the high-low mix. But there was this this kind of different perspective where in the US context, they talk about uh, lower capability, higher number of vessels. They were talking about what became the Periclass frigate. And in the US system, you know, they, they could produce it en masse. It was fairly cheap. Repair by replacement could be used to, to conduct convoys across the Atlantic. In the Australian context, though, the Periclass frigate was essentially our capital ship. You know, for almost 20 years, the Periclass or the Adelaide class in the Australian surface were the most powerful ships in the Australian Navy. So I'm really interested to see what's going to come out of Admiral Hillary's review and how small exactly these smaller ships may be and how that different kind of US-Australian perspective might play out. I think you're right. I, I really wouldn't have chosen a US admiral to conduct this review. I mean, my experience, I, I have enormous respect for American colleagues and, and for their capacities, but they've grown up immersed in the American system. And the problem of scale and translating American scale to Australian scale is you know, that can be intractable uh, for both of us. My metaphor for America and Australia is America is like one of those old-fashioned telephone exchanges, you know, plugs everywhere, holes everywhere. And Australia is like a three-pin plug. So when you talk about integrating seamlessly, that's the problem. You can plug in in a particular way for a particular time somewhere, but you can't stay there too long. You can do little bits of integration. So getting an American to really break all of those uh, mental models about force structure. You know, you're saying quite rightly, you know, for us, a capital ship, for them, it's a screen ship to protect a carrier. It's just, why start from there? So my view about this debate is, it isn't big ships versus small ships. It's about how do you get the big and the small to work really powerfully together, like we're seeing in Ukraine. You know, mm. people say, oh, you know, the tank's dead and artillery's dead. And it's all about drones and missiles. Actually, it's about both of them. And it's about making the combined power of the small, uh, cheap and the many, and the big and the exquisite, uh, getting the maximum out of the two. So I would like to see a result that said, look, getting more missiles to sea is fundamental if you want to project power. You can get more missiles to sea by building enormous ships with large missile cells in them, or you can have a control node that's an Aegis-equipped ship that's controlling the launches of missiles from a whole bunch of smaller vessels accompanying that, that large ship. So you, you have mobile magazines. And, you know, the Americans talked about this years ago with their arsenal ship and never really built it. But that, to me, is a better answer because we're not going to build, you know, a Zumwalt-class vessel, <laughs> and we shouldn't because it would be an example of the exquisite that we couldn't afford to lose. But we certainly can get more missiles to sea on smaller platforms that are controlled and directed by the larger ships. Do you think there's enough work being done in the Australian context in terms of um, an innovative approach to apply some of these concepts? No, I, I think it's mystifying to me that, you know, for a whole lot of systems, the Australian Defence Organisation and military are not seeing Ukraine as a learning opportunity. You know, we seem reluctant to give them some of the things our industry makes, like precision counter-drone systems, and we seem to want to give them stuff we've got in the disposal part of the yard. If we were giving them some of the really high quality stuff that our small and medium enterprises make, like counter drone systems made by EOS in Canberra, or some of the small unmanned systems in a maritime and air, 
we'd be learning about how to apply these, learning how operationally effective they were and scaling our domestic defence industry. And I think there are lessons for the maritime space as well. I mean, the sinking of the Moskva, there was a big ship and it wasn't even sunk by another ship. It was sunk by missiles after being distracted by drones. It's exactly that that combination effect I'm talking about. So arguably, if the Ukrainians had just fired anti-ship missiles at it, its defence systems may have destroyed the incoming anti-ship missiles. But distracting its defensive capability with drones and then killing it with anti-ship missiles, that proved extraordinarily effective. That's that's a lesson. Yeah, yeah, very innovative. Michael, you talked a little bit earlier about some nuclear deterrence discussions that were happening around the region. And we saw recently South Korean President Yoon pursue greater assurances of extended nuclear deterrence from the US, which resulted in the fairly grandly termed uh, Washington Declaration with President Biden. Um, Under the Washington Declaration, the US has provided, quote, ironclad, unquote, assurances of extended nuclear deterrence against North Korea and closer integration of South Korea into US nuclear planning. Now, our own DSR states that the risk of nuclear escalation is real, yet we have no similar ironclad assurances. Now, obviously, uh, the situation with South and North Korea is, is different, but is nuclear deterrence an area that requires more focus in the Australian context. It's funny, isn't it, that uh, we absolutely rely on extended nuclear deterrence from America for our security. Uh, For all the reasons we've talked about, you know, Australia alone is not going to deter a powerful nuclear-armed state like China. And China has missile capability to launch conventional and nuclear missiles to Australian territory anytime it felt the need, so it does need to be deterred from doing that and breaking the nuclear taboo may not be such a problem for Xi Jinping as it is for others. You know, arguably, all the public stuff about how he's told Vladimir Putin not to use nuclear weapons, it sounds deeply reassuring. But what if he's happy that others don't, but he's also happy that he might? So we need to deter China. And the only way to do that um, when it comes to nuclear weapons is extended deterrence. Australians seem reluctant to really have the hard conversations with our American colleagues and say, look, this is fundamental, so tell us how this will actually work. And it's it's a difficult domestic issue because nobody likes talking about nuclear weapons. You can see that with the AUKUS submarine debate where the fact that they have nuclear reactors with highly enriched uranium is a difficult part of the debate. So we, we don't like talking about nuclear weapons, but we're dependent on them. The Japanese and the South Koreans both know uh, they need not to just leave it on autopilot with the Americans, but understand the role that American nuclear weapons are playing in security. It's they're becoming more important in our security, not less. And that's a different trajectory to what we hoped for. You know, the Fukuyama trajectory was let's all disarm and be happy. That's not the trajectory that we're on. You know, the last thing anyone should want is America to unilaterally disarm itself of nuclear weapons while China builds a massive nuclear arsenal. So we have to re-engage the Americans to let them know how fundamental nuclear deterrence is for us. And we have to think about how we enable American nuclear strategy to be credible. So we probably have a part to play. Absolutely. Michael, final question. We touched just before on uh, the need for greater innovation within defence capability development. 
I note that the DSR itself talks about uh, defence's ability to plan capability. And it notes defence's, quote, over-reliance on bottom-up proposals forming the bulk of new entries into the integrated investment program and a surprising lack of top-down direction or genuine joint assessment, unquote. Now, this kind of reflects these long-standing concerns from some commentators, I think probably including yourself, Michael, with defence's management of uh, the strategy capability nexus. Some concerns that capability planning is, uh, as we've said, probably too platform-centric and lacks strategic cohesion. Part of the solution in the DSI is this proposed biennial national defence strategy. Do you think this is going to be effective? Do you think defence is capable of real change here? And do we need an overarching national security strategy first? Well, I don't think another document is going to change behaviour. You know, another layered document over the top of documents like the Defence Strategic Review is not going to change organisational behaviour inside the Department of Defence or the ADF. So I, I don't think a national security strategy will solve any of these problems. You can already see, you know, there's this idea of national defence in the DSR, and which tries to make the argument that everybody else in the country, every other government department, federal and state, and every company and every citizen, part of their job is to help defence do its work. I don't think that argument is compelling outside the bounds of Russell offices. I think people expect the people in defence to do their job and other people will do their own jobs. And a national security strategy is just going to be a bigger shout that everybody needs to help do this job. The way I think innovation can happen is outside defence. Defence needs to stop trying to own it all and direct it all. And there was the possibility with that advanced capability accelerator idea for that to happen. In fact, the DSR authors themselves said, this new entity needs to be unencumbered by defence. But what defence did is say, well, by unencumbered by defence, you must mean integrated into defence and run by the same part of defence that's failed to do any rapid innovation for the last 10 years, the Defence Science and Technology Organisation or group. So if you keep giving the same answer to the question of innovation, which is, well, defence will get better at it, and there's no evidence that that's happening, you shouldn't be surprised when you keep failing to innovate. So right back to the, what we talked about at the start, the mindset is... The force structure I have is right, I just need to replace and elaborate it. So if I've got a big surface ship, when I replace it, I need a bigger, more capable version of that. It's like buying the later model of a car. You know, I, I love my Honda Accord, so I'm now going to buy their new model because it's even more intricate, expensive and impressive than the old one. So you've got you to break that and say, no, military power can be created by means that I do not yet have. And it's not a gap. It's a novel new thing. That's what the Ukrainians are doing every day right now. But to do that, it's very unlikely that the result is going to come out of a defence committee that everybody has a vote on and everybody agrees to because it's far more tribal and introspective than that. So, you know, the lesson out of the Second World War is the military user can say what the problem is, but it's often somebody outside the military in a company or in a uh, science and technology outfit um, working with the military user 
that can show them something they haven't had before and solve the problem in a, in a different way. Mm. So, you know, armed unmanned systems are a great example of that. If you don't have them, you don't know what they do. And at the moment, if you were really energized about working with a drone, you'd be better getting into farming in Australia than joining the military. Yeah, and as you said, Michael, there is there's a lot of talent and there is a lot of innovation happening in some of the small to medium enterprises in the Australian defence industry. So your recommendation essentially would be to harness that talent, bring it into the system and have it more central, have it help to drive an outcome. Is that right? Well, exactly. Go beyond demonstration days, you know, adopt and use and develop things. So people talk about, well, I have to get, you know, the concept of operations for unmanned systems right first. And I really need to think through, you know, what will unmanned underwater vehicles do for me? No, get some of them, start using them, work out what they'll do, and then reverse engineer your concepts from there. When a war is on, that's what people do. So we know that's successful behavior. We should do that now. Do you think we need a greater willingness to file, a willingness to try and file, see what works and what doesn't? I think, unfortunately, that's a cliche. I think we need to know that we can succeed with some of these things. You know, like it would be successful to have precision counter drone systems that we know work in the Australian order of battle. It would be a success to get some of the air missile, air, air defence systems that we know work rather than trying to come up with the ideal architecture before we do anything. You know, we we seem to be in love with the idea of the concept and large documents and slow-moving things rather than getting things that work, playing with them and working out what else we do. So I, I think we need to get more practical and stop thinking of ourselves as the ultimate thinkers who can solve every intellectual problem without a material solution. Oh, that's terrific advice. Unfortunately, Michael, though, that's all we have time for today. Michael Shoebridge, thank you for joining us here on The Saltwater Strategists. It's been a fascinating and an insightful conversation. Thanks very much. It was great to talk with you and thank you for the questions. Not always easy, but I enjoyed them. We would like to extend our sincerest thanks to Michael Shoebridge for joining us today and sharing his expert insights into the China Challenge. Michael's work has been fundamental in informing and educating both government and the community on the risks this new environment presents. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following The Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, www.navalinstitute.com.au. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events. A big thank you to our sponsor, BAE Systems, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security. I'm Sam Farrell-Lee. Thanks for listening.